Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to all you children of God. In the biblical account of history, mankind was created directly by the Creator God. And furthermore, it says we were created in the image of God Himself. And we are meant to be in relationship with our Father God, the Creator. And even though we are sinful and do not deserve and cannot be in direct communication with a holy God, His Son Jesus died to pay the price for our sins, granting us cleanliness if we belong to Jesus, and so restoring the broken relationship with our Creator. That is a very small synopsis of what it means to be a child of God in the Bible. However, our culture likes to grab that phrase also and apply child of God to everyone, and sometimes rocks and trees and other things as well. But let's just think about people for the moment. Back when I was in high school, we had the Woodstock concert, and there was a very popular song written by Joni Mitchell, The most popular version of it was by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and the title was Woodstock, and this song tells us who we are, at least from their perspective. Listen closely. Well, that is certainly a familiar sound to me, but then again, perhaps that says more about my age, considering that song was popular in 1970, than it does about how good the song is. And I suspect a few of you recognize that sound as well. What does that song say about who mankind is? Well, I came across a child of God. He was walking along the road. So that's just us, right? But then who are we? The chorus says... We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we got to get ourselves back to the garden. Well, getting back to the garden is clearly a reference to the biblical story of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? But that doesn't mean that they believe that's true. That's just used in the notion of, let's get mankind back to being calmer and gentler and nicer. Certainly a good sentiment, and we need a lot of that type of changing. But what I want to talk about more today is the statement, we are stardust. We are billion-year-old carbon. What is that talking about? Well, it's referring to what knowledgeable, scientific, modern thinking people know to be the case. I'm being a bit sarcastic here, but essentially here's what they think they know. Clearly, the biblical account of history is just a silly, mythical old story made up by primitives who weren't as smart and as scientifically advanced as we are today. We now know all about the Big Bang. 
That's what this is referring to. According to the Big Bang, all of the elements heavier than hydrogen, helium, and a little bit of lithium, all the other elements didn't exist out of the Big Bang or weren't created out of the Big Bang, but rather they were created much later by the process of nucleosynthesis. Effectively, light little atoms were jammed together to form heavier atoms, and we get all of the so-called metals, which is almost everything. Certainly, the vast majority of me and you are atoms referred to as metals by astronomers. But all of these atoms were produced by nucleosynthesis in the core of stars. And then those stars explode, go supernova, blasting those atoms out into space, and they eventually coalesce into things like the Earth. They become dust, and eventually life arises by purely natural means on the Earth or elsewhere. Maybe we're actually aliens, if you believe in panspermia. But whether it was out in space and were actually aliens, or whether it occurred on the surface of the Earth, doesn't really matter. We are nothing but stardust, animated stardust. Billion-year-old carbon. If you were a Star Trek fan, you'll often remember them talking about carbon-based life forms. That's what humans are, and everything else we're aware of that's alive, essentially. But there's a description of who man is. He's nothing but animated stardust, produced by the explosions of stars, all of which originated in the Big Bang. And we can call ourselves a child of God, but that really sort of just means we're part of nature. The notion that there's a transcendent God that created all of this is explicitly excluded from this entire worldview, and the idea that man is somehow special and made in the image of that God is also excluded. In fact, it's considered to be nothing but egotistical and ridiculous. Man is not special. We are no different than any other living creature. And actually, we may be no different than a rock. Depends on how far you take it. And we'll come back in just a moment and talk about some important recent scientific events related to just how well proven is this entire Big Bang scenario anyway. So let's continue discussing the perspective that we are nothing but animated stardust made in the cores of stars. We've talked on earlier episodes, and I don't have much time to repeat it here, about the simple fact that within the Big Bang scenario, you don't get any stars at all. There is no solution for the problem of forming the very first stars. Hot gas simply does not coalesce into gravitationally bound objects. And so there's really no good answer for stars existing at all, and that is admitted by atheist cosmologist. The formation of stars and the formation of galaxies and things like that are simply unsolved problems. We'll figure it out later. And if you go look up the formation of stars at places like NASA, for example, you see a description that uses the notion of a shock wave being produced by perhaps a supernova. The shock wave helps push together this gas cloud, allowing it to begin collapsing and form a new star. But what is a supernova? That is the explosion of an already existing star. And so that explanation has absolutely nothing to do with the formation of the very first stars. 
Look closely. See if you can find a detailed explanation for the formation of the first stars. And for it to really be a scientific description, it really needs to have some mathematics in it because we have to overcome known physical laws that cause hot gases to expand, not contract. By all means, let me know if you find a solution to that. I've been looking actively for that since 1976. Since we're discussing the Big Bang, which was supposedly nearly 14 billion years ago, we're talking about the distant past. Well, let's talk about the slightly less distant past of March 2014, when we had this enormous explosion of excitement and information about this tremendous new discovery the, quote, first direct evidence of cosmic inflation, end quote. Well, just what is cosmic inflation anyway? Let me read you the introduction to the paper over at Fizorg about this incredible discovery. Almost 14 billion years ago, the universe we inhabit burst into existence in an extraordinary event that initiated the Big Bang. In the first fleeting fraction of a second, the universe expanded exponentially, stretching far beyond the view of our best telescopes. All this, of course, was just theory. Researchers from the BICEP2 collaboration today announced the first direct evidence for this cosmic inflation. Their data also represent the first images of gravitational waves, or ripples in space-time. These waves have been described as the first tremors of the Big Bang. Finally, the data confirm a deep connection between quantum mechanics and general relativity. Quote, Detecting this signal is one of the most important goals in cosmology today. A lot of work by a lot of people has led up to this point, said John Kovac, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, leader of the BICEP2 collaboration. Quite a dramatic announcement, and it got a great deal of well-deserved attention. And one of the points I want you to think about is the flat-out statement, this is the first direct evidence of cosmic inflation. That pretty clearly implies that prior to that, there was no direct evidence of cosmic inflation. Furthermore, they describe the Big Bang and this inflation period, and they say all of this, of course, was just theory, implying it's no longer theory because we now have direct evidence for it. Well, as those of you who follow scientific events closely at all are probably aware, the data that was claimed as evidence for this has now been debunked and refuted. We'll talk about that. It is no longer believed by most to actually be evidence for gravitational waves, nor cosmic inflation. Well, what does that mean? It means we're back to having no evidence at all for cosmic inflation. And it's not like we haven't been looking. So let's look at what is cosmic inflation and why is it important. But first, let me remind you of one of the most serious and difficult and most often promoted arguments against a biblical creation view. It's very easy to understand the question. The question is, if the earth is really only 6,000 years old, how can we possibly see starlight from stars or galaxies that are billions of light years away? Very good question. 
in a simplistic view of the universe, you would say, since it's billions of light years away, the light source is that far away, that it would take billions of years for the light to get here, and we haven't had time. We discuss potential solutions to this question, and solutions do exist within the realm of cosmology and the laws of physics. If you're interested in that, listen to the episode, How Could Adam and Eve See the Stars? was broadcast October 4th, 2013, and it's available on our website at creationmythormiracle.com. But this problem is what's called a light time travel problem. For recent creation, a biblical creation model, how does the light get from the stars to the earth in the time allotted? The Big Bang has the very same type of a problem, a light travel time problem. The problem is usually referred to as the horizon problem, and essentially it's the following. In the early Big Bang expanding universe scenario, there was no time, insufficient time, for radiation to move from one edge of this expanding universe to the other, even at the speed of light. Insufficient time. Portions of this expanding universe were never in communication with each other because they were simply too far away to allow radiation to communicate between them. What this means is there was no way to transfer heat energy and smooth out the temperature of these various regions of this expanding universe. And yet the interpretation of the cosmic microwave background radiation implies that the universe has a phenomenally smooth temperature. But this would be unlikely for sure to happen by chance. So how did it happen? This was a very serious challenge to the entire Big Bang model. Here was an observation, the smoothness of the temperature everywhere in the universe, versus the theory of the Big Bang, which would imply regions of this universe never exchanged radiation, so they should not be the same temperature. Direct contradiction. So how does inflation resolve this? In a very simplified explanation, think of it this way. Early on, before inflation, these regions of the universe were close enough to each other to exchange radiation and reach thermal equilibrium, all have the same temperature. Then inflation occurs. This inflation, by the way, is much faster than the speed of light. So these regions of the universe now expand away from each other much faster than the speed of light. They're now so far apart that they could not communicate at normal light speed, but that was not the case pre-inflation. Thus, these regions of space were able to achieve thermal equilibrium, and we see the constant smooth temperature in the CMB today. Now, this sounds nice, but it would be kind of good to have some physical evidence for it. This sounds like a very ad hoc drop-in explanation to solve a monumental problem. By the way, it wasn't just that problem. There were other problems in the Big Bang that this inflation story supposedly resolves. There's a pretty nice article over at Wikipedia on cosmic inflation. You might want to take a look at that if you have an interest in this. Consider this statement about the motivations for the inflation solution. Inflation resolves several problems in the Big Bang cosmology that were discovered in the 1970s. It was first discovered by Guth while investigating the problem of why no magnetic monopoles are seen today. We'll talk about that later if we have time. And investigating this, Guth found that a positive energy false vacuum would 
according to general relativity, generate an exponential expansion of space. It was very quickly realized that such an expansion would resolve many other long-standing problems. So understand, Guth was trying to explain why do we not observe magnetic monopoles, which are a direct prediction of physics and the Big Bang model, but we don't see them. And he hypothesized this inflation event to explain it away. And then it turned out that inflation allowed him to explain several other problems away as well. Now, Guth's particular solution was shown to be wrong, and there are modifications to the inflation model, but that's unimportant for the level we're discussing here. But consider this very next statement. This is under motivations for coming up with this. These problems arise from the observation that to look like it does today, the universe would have to have started from very fine-tuned or special initial conditions at the Big Bang. Inflation attempts to resolve these problems by providing a dynamical mechanism that drives the universe to this special state, thus making a universe like ours much more likely in the context of the Big Bang theory. There's a couple of important points here. They are desperate to explain away the appearance of fine-tuning of the universe around us. Why is that a big deal? It's because taken at face value... When something is fine-tuned, it looks like you have a fine-tuner. That is, something that set these constants to these very precise, unexpected, specific, special conditions. The word special is the problem. Remember Stephen Hawking's statement about assuming the cosmological principle? It's ideology. It's a religious belief to avoid the appearance of being special because special implies purpose, and an atheist view of the universe requires there be no purpose to it at all, so we need to explain away any appearance of fine-tuning or design. And notice also that you need inflation just to make a universe like ours more likely in the context of the Big Bang Theory. Without inflation, it doesn't happen, and the Big Bang gets discarded. So with that bit of background, you might understand better why there was so much hoopla, talks about a Nobel Prize, etc., with this discovery of the first direct evidence of cosmic inflation. It's because cosmic inflation is required to hang on to the Big Bang model, and yet we have no physical evidence for it whatsoever. Cosmologists like it because it's a single story that supposedly solves several problems, each of which would destroy the Big Bang. The fact that I can put together a scenario that appears to solve several problems is not evidence that the scenario is true. It simply means I did a good job concocting that scenario. And by the way, I believe I've read other physical cosmologists who have written that when you look at the details, inflation doesn't really solve these problems anyway. I keep mentioning the devils in the details, and you need to look for details with these claims. Over at Uncommon Descent, there's a real short blog entry back at the end of May. Rob Sheldon, who's a physicist, by the way, says there isn't a single model of inflation that works. In commenting on a physics article, Can Physics Tell Us If Time Had a Beginning?, Sheldon says, A nice tutorial on how important metaphysics is for doing cosmology. According to Ethan Siegel, inflation has been proved by the WMAP Planck satellites. If you talk to an inflation expert, 
there isn't a single model that works. What a contrast. Just like Darwinism. For the masses, it's a proven fact. For the experts, it's an unworkable model. You'd be far more accurate just ascertaining the metaphysics of the scientist, and then you'd know precisely which models he will call facts. So if you want to know where Ethan Siegel stands on inflation and multiverses, just ask if he believes in the creation of the universe, as has been commonly held for the past 2,000 years. The rest of the tutorial is just PowerPoint animations of the metaphysics. Sheldon's absolutely correct, and that's why I no longer believe some of the things I believed when I was an atheist. My metaphysics changed, and my standard of proof requirements for the theories that atheists commonly believed went up, and the proof is lacking, and I no longer believe them. And now consider this column over at nature.com. Big Bang Blunder Bursts the Multiverse Bubble Premature Hype over gravitational waves highlights gaping holes in models for the origin and evolution of the universe, argues Paul Steinhardt. Wait a minute. You mean there are problems with the models for the origins and evolution of the universe? They aren't rock-solid proven scientific fact like I was always told and like you've been told so many times? Not if you ask the experts. Now listen closely to this statement from that column. The BICEP2 incident has also revealed a truth about inflationary theory. The common view is that it is a highly predictive theory. If that was the case and the detection of gravitational waves was the smoking gun proof of inflation, one would think that non-detection means that the theory fails, such is the nature of normal science. Yet some proponents of inflation who celebrated the BICEP2 announcement already insist that the theory is equally valid whether or not gravitational waves are detected. How is this possible? The answer given by proponents is alarming. The inflationary paradigm is so flexible that it is immune to experimental and observational tests. Steinhardt goes on to describe some of those issues and then concludes, no experiment can rule out a theory that allows for all possible outcomes, hence the paradigm of inflation is unfalsifiable. Hold on, isn't that exactly the claim made against a creationist view, that it's unfalsifiable and thereby not science? If you really pay attention to what's going on in this issue of origins, what you will find is that nobody has a scientifically proven scenario that explains what exists. Nobody. The naturalistic explanations don't work, they're either incomplete or just flat wrong, but they simply don't work at this point in time. There's no question about that if you look at what the experts say. On the other hand, a creation view of origins also leaves us with quite a number of unknown details because the creator simply didn't tell us. And the creation events involve occurrences that are outside the natural laws of physics today. By the way, do you know that statement's also true of the Big Bang? If you try to get back to time equals zero, the laws of physics are not the same. So what does all this mean if you sum it all up? It simply shows that on this issue of origin, since we can't observe it happening today, it happened uniquely in the past, science, that is, data, experimentation, etc., is not a discriminator between a Big Bang view, for example, and a biblical creationist view. Each of these models has scientific difficulties, 
Each of them has proposed solutions for it. The real discriminator is simply metaphysics. If one is a materialist, then there can be no creator. Therefore, the creation model can't be true. Doesn't matter how good it works or anything else. It can't be true because of the metaphysical belief that there is no creator. And reaching a conclusion that way is perfectly honest. Just don't tell the public that it's due to scientific evidence. It's not. The atheist simply believes, by faith in his metaphysics, that perhaps one day we'll figure out how this all happened. But when it comes to the details, we truly have no story that works today. But I'm still going to tell students that we do, that it's all figured out, and that any scientifically enlightened person will believe it's true and disbelieve that biblical account of creation. Think for yourself, and don't be fooled by this metaphysical game. Seacreationmythormiracle.com.